Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Content warning. While the cult of Christianity often deals with tough subjects regarding religious trauma and other triggering topics, some episodes may be more explicit than others. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. This may include multiple mentions of self-harm, suicide, sexual abuse, or other intense concepts. Please only listen if you are in the headspace to do so. Take care of yourself. Brene Brown has spent decades studying the topics of courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. She is the author of five number one New York Times bestsellers, The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness, and Dare to Lead. Brene hosts the Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead podcast. Her TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, has almost 55 million views. Her filmed lecture, Brene Brown, The Call to Courage, debuted on Netflix in 2019. While she has been an inspiration and instrumental in many folks' lives, I would like to add to the pile. When I was going through my divorce, my ex-spouse and I were still considering repairing the disconnect. We saw a couples coach who was certified under uh, Brown's tutelage and coaching program. The the homework, you know, reading worksheets, etc., was instrumental in changing the trajectory of my life. Before this coaching, I was hell-bent on obeying God as perfectly as possible and felt like I had no agency to accomplish this goal. I also had such rigid visions of how my life should look and thought digging into my past or acknowledging all the flaws of my mindset would bring such shame that I wouldn't survive it. While I still suffer from a fear of vulnerability and haven't shaken off all my shame, I at least know how to articulate these concepts better than I ever would if I hadn't, uh, if it hadn't been for that couples coach and Brene Brown's work. Because of her great work on these topics, I'd highly recommend turning to her for more information on the topic of shame. I simply want to share some of my reflections on the topic that is overwhelmingly influenced by my interpretation and interaction with her research. Give credit where credit is due. It is invaluable to understand that shame, both self-shaming and shaming others, is ultimately a forgiveness blocker. Forgiveness is specifically aimed to remove the shame of a situation. Many make the split uh, between forgiving and forgetting. And I think what uh, that cliche is pointing to is the fact that absolute absolution um, seems to... Uh, somehow be unwise or naive. Um, That assumption is an implied importance 
of protecting ourselves from being blinded. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But why is there shame on anyone? Moreover, it is kind of interesting that even in that cliche, the shame shifts from the offender to the offended by mere allowance of a repeated blindside. We fear being blindsided. But why? Ultimately, it is because we want to trust our ability to trust. We want trust to be placed well, and we feel somewhat ashamed when we put trust in the wrong person, places, or things. It seems we want to be more in control of our lives than we are. But this is the tension of existence. How much is in our control and how much is out of our control? And in some ways, it depends on how much money, power, and status you have. But in other ways, it makes no difference how much money, power, and status you have. We all get blindsided. We all hate it. And there seems to be no way to prevent it. But this may be a little more nuanced than mere control issues. I don't think we are all mini-Hitlers trying to create law and order in the universe. I mean, maybe the scary fact is that is actually part of being a human. But beyond that, we are so averse to being ashamed despite feeling it frequently. And this doesn't mean there aren't levels or relativism uh, to be contemplated here. Some of us care about others' judgments more than the rest. Some of us are more apathetic. But the fact is that we are wired to care about a guardian's approval at minimum, even if we give up or grow up at some point. Few people hate hearing that they are admired unless they are already engaging in some level of self-loathing. Part of our survival as a species, and to a lesser extent as a culture, is to have negative reactions to the things that feel dangerous. There is something rather unsafe feeling about being judged, being fooled, or putting trust where it did not belong. This means that shame is a common human experience. Living shamelessly is likely impossible in an exact sense, but we might be able to get close to it. The closest you can come to abstinence from shaming others is to be exceedingly forgiving. No one can completely erase those snap judgments of people that sound problematic or unsafe to our ears, but we can combat that judgment by both forgiving the harm others have caused us and our loved ones and forgiving ourselves for being more prejudicial than we would like to be. The cyclical torture of all of this is that shame acts as a forgiveness blocker. Shame tells you that forgiving everything all the time is stupid and naive. In fact, sometimes it is. We can probably think of many scenarios where we wish someone in an abusive situation would stop forgiving their abuser so they could escape the situation. That indignation seems righteous. And I'm not one to say whether or not that type of frustration is morally proper or not. I will say that the problem in those situations might ironically not be an abundance of forgiveness, but an abundance of shame. When we feel ashamed, we actually might not struggle with forgiving those we love, only ourselves. In fact, we might consciously or subconsciously believe we deserve the abuse or punishment we are receiving. My observations lead me to believe that people tend to internalize or externalize shame when they are under duress. 
in stressful situations, the likelihood of phrases such as, God, I hate them, or God, I hate myself, it seems to be more frequent. Different folks with different personalities will likely gravitate towards one of those negative messages more so than the other. They may not be entirely mutually exclusive, but this is consistent with the overlap that uh, violence tends to be homicidal or suicidal and only rarely overlapping simultaneously. When you are ashamed of how you acted the past week, it takes quite a bit of courage to say, it's okay, I understand why I behave that way, I forgive myself. This is rarely an individual's default settings and often takes some therapy and self-reflection to learn. Additionally, when someone hurts you, it is difficult to say, it's okay, I understand why they behave that way, I forgive them. While we may seek to ignore problematic behaviors for our own convenience, that is not actually the same thing as forgiveness. Wishing them to harbor no shame for their behavior takes a level of grace that I certainly don't have the energy to express most days. It is shame that keeps us resentful, bitter, and stagnant. Forgiveness, as unjust and simplistic as it seems, is often the only path forward in our lives. Shame, that ugly feeling that tells us forgiveness is for chumps, or that we're somehow failing to have standards or a just framework. Shame is poisonous and unproductive. Its comfort is fleeting. Brene Brown often references the concept of the arena. This comes from Theodore Roosevelt, who once said, quote, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how, how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. End quote. Shame prevents humans from stepping into this metaphorical arena. We can spend a lot of time deconstructing why arenas exist, if they are ethical, who benefits from the existence of such arenas, whether there are implications or rules to the arena, and essentially give ourselves headaches as we dive so deep into a metaphor that we bust our heads on the rocky bottom. But for our own personal health, we should recognize that being critical of the arena is not a brave exercise. It is being a spectator. Being willing to confront our monsters without fear of onlookers, and likely stumbling and looking marred, is a confrontation that is exhausting, but has potential to be rewarding. More than that, there is no shame in failing if there is effort. The forgiveness blocker is slayed by the mere effort to fight it. It doesn't mean it won't take multiple battles to win a war, but it is a rather quaint reflection to realize that we can get A's for effort. One of the temptations when contemplating this metaphor of stepping into the arena is to make excuses for not being ready to face certain things yet. 
And my sensitive soul is desperate to acknowledge the crippling pain trauma can cause that makes existing in itself an accomplishment. I may indulge this empathy too much, though. I I never want to be the guy who says, you got to deal with it or you can't run forever. I hear the insensitivity in those statements. But I think Brene Brown says it well. Quote, When we spend our lives waiting until we're perfect or bulletproof before we walk into the arena, we ultimately sacrifice relationships and opportunities that may not be recoverable. We squander our precious time and we turn our backs on our gifts, those unique contributions that only we can make, end quote. The point of getting off the bench and onto the field is not to impress others or somehow demonstrate the strength we already have, but rather to accept what opportunities we do have to use our time and talents to contribute to the world and perhaps more importantly, exist in a meaningful way. This isn't the same thing as living our lives for others, but rather participating in humanity in a unique way that only each individual can. In her book, Daring Greatly, Brown also explains how shaming others and ourselves interact. Quote, We judge people in arenas where we're vulnerable to shame, especially picking folks who are doing worse than we're doing. If I feel good about my parenting, I have no interest in judging other people's choices. If I feel good about my body, I don't go around making fun of other people's weight or appearance. We're hard on each other because we're using each other as a launching pad out of our own perceived deficiency. End quote. When we are in the arena, we are rarely judging how other folks are fighting their demons. In fact, we are more equipped and intent on helping them. But when we are a mere critic on the sidelines, we feel shame and project onto others. The arena is scary, annoying, and perhaps even unfair. But it is where growth can actually happen. The most important weapon in the arena is the concept of vulnerability. As Brown says, I define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. With that definition in mind, let's think about love, waking up every day and loving someone who may or may not love us back, whose safety we can't ensure, who may stay in our lives or may leave without a moment's notice, who may be loyal to the day they die or betray us tomorrow. That's vulnerability. End quote. And as C.S. Lewis said, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And I prefer to read that last quote rather irreligiously. There is nothing more synonymous with the concept of eternal torture in my humanistic mind 
than being an unbreakable, unloved, and unloving shell of a human forever. I, I have been this type of man in some of the grossest chapters of my life, and not only is it unexciting, but it is also utterly pointless. But why is it like this? Shouldn't love be a comfort? <laughs> can, can it please be a safe feeling, an escape from uncertainty, a peaceful mindset? I wish it were so. There is great poetry to having love and lost, and I can assure the true power of love is only felt when it exists in light of the risk involved, not in ignorance to it. I remember at the height of my pain over the, my failures as a husband, I felt so exposed. I would tell my friends, in desperation to save my marriage, I ripped off every band-aid I had ever put on, showed every ugly, unhealed, and infected wound I had carried with me since childhood. And then I was still rejected. In my mind, I was flesh, bones, blood, and smut. No skin even remained. <sighs> Alcoholism and apathy became the duct tape that I would quickly reach for in order to cover up again, just to remain intact. You know what, though? I don't feel ashamed of that duct tape. And I'm still peeling off the residue. But I promise, if I didn't boozily and brazenly float through that year, I would have shot myself or jumped off a bridge. And I guess, in a sense, I've forgiven myself for how I coped with that grief and loss. I'm still working on forgiving uh, the failures that happened prior. But it is the goal. I'm in the arena. And it sucks. <laughs> it sucks being vulnerable. Uh, you know, a negative thing I will say about fans of Brown and others who like kind of the Instagram version of the school of thought is that they sometimes make it sound rather romantic when the process, at least for me, is rather vulgar and grotesque. It hurts. Ripping off band-aids hurts. Having open wounds, bleeding, feeling unsafe. It is painful in the most visceral sense of the word. But God, is it necessary? If you want to be able to receive, give, or display love, vulnerability is a, prerequ a prerequisite. And as Brene Brown says, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. This is the crux of a healthy and enlightened understanding of vulnerability. The term in our culture, or perhaps even in our wiring, connotes weakness. This is a lie. There is amazing strength in being vulnerable. Vulnerability is active honesty. It is a courageous choice, and it is unabashedly and mightily brave. And if you're like me, all of this might sound a bit overdramatic to you. Does life really need such metaphors and depth to be lived? Perhaps not. You know, perhaps this is uh, maybe some other folks' default settings. You know, perhaps not every human needs to find this kind of strength in themselves, and it should content where they are at. But the drama 
is often forced upon us, not just created in our own minds. (laughs) The last 27 years of my life has proven to be dramatic when the camera focuses on me and when I read any encyclopedia on any topic. Love, life, and the rest seems to be more of a battlefield than a cruise. So why bring this idea of shame up on my podcast? Well, for starters, this silly little show where I pontificate into a microphone is one of my exercises in vulnerability. I am forcing my true self to be heard and seen. Beyond that, this subject is one of the most healing and essential concepts when confronting cultish Christianity. All of the appeal of the Jesus narrative is based in this understanding of shame, forgiveness, and vulnerability. All of the repulsion of its adherence is how they shame, fail to forgive, and discourage vulnerability. If C.S. Lewis was right that to love it all is to be vulnerable, it makes absolute sense that white evangelicalism looks like the opposite of love often. To be controlled and contained to their cult is to be forced out of the arena. To look down on true authenticity. To despise the anarchy of establishing who you are. Cultish Christianity is to be a spectator of a narrative without the freedom to create one. And though this may seem harsh, or like I am ironically shaming people and contradicting my own points, I find the monsters in this arena to be doing such harm that the cult of Christianity must be critiqued and fought. They weaponize shame, gatekeep forgiveness, and detest vulnerability. In a world full of toxic Christianity, one man has elected to change everything. What's his name? No, what's his name? (laughs) Oh, it's me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm John Werner, son of... Timothy Ferner. It's <laughs> my dad's real name. God help the poor guy. <laughs> I'm just out here trying to tell people Christianity's a cult. Yeah, he is. And he's even written a whole freaking book about it. And now you can read all about his opinions in The Cult of Christianity by John Werner. Yeah, you should go buy my book, guys. It helps me buy Taco Bell. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 14. What is sin? Answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. I will have this question and answer to this catechism memorized until the day I die. When I was a young child under the age of 10, I was participating in the children's Wednesday night activities for my church. In order to be dismissed at the end of the program, us kids had to answer all of the first 15 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And for whatever reason, question 14 took me the most tries. And the language is certainly of the time when it was written, quote, any want of conformity unto or transgression of, that sounds Shakespearean and confusing. A modern simplified version of the answer would be something like, Sin is any lack of conformity or direct disobedience of the law of God. In essence, this means there are two categories of any action, thought, or heart. 
there's obedient and disobedient. And this is no less dualistic than how most people understand morality, good or bad. The only difference is that this sentiment acknowledges that God is the one who determines what is good and what is bad. If we obey him, we do good. If we don't, we do bad. Perhaps this answer would be satisfactory if the law of God were clear-cut and universally agreed to by Christians, or even just Protestant Christians. Alas, no such unity exists. Let's look at what is often used as a summary of what sin is in Christianity. The Ten Commandments that Moses supposedly received miraculously on top of a mountain uh, for the Jewish folk that were just delivered from slavery, um, uh, slavery to the Egyptians. Uh, the, the first commandment, one, you shall have no other gods before me. All right. So this is clearly <laughs> defining Judaism as monotheistic, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it is somehow acknowledging that other gods exist. God is just the most important one. I mean, a more literal translation would read, you should not have gods over me. Is there some hierarchical theism going on or exclusive monotheism being proclaimed? Commandment 2. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth ge- and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is rather interesting. Once again, God doesn't seem to be concerned primarily with establishing himself as the only God, but rather calls himself jealous, or as a more literal translation might suggest, possessive. He doesn't make some iconoclastic claim that pictures of him are bad, but rather any sculpture of anything in heaven above or earth below should not be bowed down to. This commandment is so context-specific. We are tempted to merge the first two commandments, even though they might be addressing two very different things. The implication of the first is that God is the gaudiest God, and the implication of the second is that you shouldn't worship any physical thing. But more modern evangelicals shorten both these commands to the Jewish refugees from Egypt to simply mean, believe in Christianity only and don't mix it with anything else. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Somehow, this commandment is taken by evangelicals to mean don't be vulgar. I have absolutely no idea how Christians got to that interpretation. This is a command that upheld the tradition of not writing Yahweh's full name. To consider the name holy and valuable, to not use the power of the name for your own purposes or privileges. Now, how the fuck does that mean don't cuss? Commandment four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Once again... This is in keeping with the tradition of Jewish folk, of having a day off. It was supposed to be a day where everything, your whole family, your slaves, your animals, took the day off, which, 
not that it necessarily matters. This was Saturday. Um, somehow evangelicals have reimagined this commandment to mean attend church on Sunday. Uh, more traditional Christians might even uh, might at least say rest on Sunday since it is our th- Sabbath <laughs> and do not go to work. But but even that's a bit of a stretch. Um, further, these first four commandments are often taught as defining our relationship with God, and the next six have to do with our relationship with others. And boy, is that reductive. Um, if the only way we relate to God is by acknowledging Yahweh as the highest deity, not bowing down to any sculptures, not using the name Yahweh in pointless ways, and by not working on Saturdays, not only is that really simple, but it's also missing a lot of material according to the evangelicals I know. Commandment 5. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Surprise, surprise, this commandment is used by Christians as the ultimate way to control children and force them to submit to their parents, even though the original audience was primarily adults. The original idea was to give weight to what your parents have done for you. And this is in keeping with the Jewish tradition of multiple generations living together and taking care of the elders like they take care of you when you are younger. This is quite different than simple submission to your parents when you are a child. Commandment 6. You shall not murder. Finally, one that makes sense and is simple and near universal, right? Well, it is rather interesting to watch evangelicals try to hair-split the words murder and killing. Uh, They will be like, well, obviously when it comes to war, self-defense, and blah blah blah, it is justified. Almost as if there are crusades in Christian history or gun rights or nationalism that they're hoping to excuse. (sighs) Commandment 7. You shall not commit adultery. Now this verse is interpreted as don't have any sex outside marriage. You want to know a more historical and contextual direct interpretation of this commandment? Do not have sex with a woman married to a stranger. Remember, women were viewed similar to property, and there were plenty of polygamous relationships, but to have sex with a woman who was married to a stranger, possibly a non-Jew, was to risk pregnancy and reproducing outside their ethnocentric ethnocentric worldview. Also, the patriarch should have a say if any extra sex is to be had, because if he married her, she belonged to him. Commandment 8. You shall not steal. This one is straightforward. It's the only one that is. Uh, Although, I must add, I heard growing up that skipping church or failing to tithe 10% was stealing time or stealing money from God. Yikes. Uh, Commandment 9. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. While the essence of this command is is, it's don't lie, uh, more accurately, this does specifically mean don't give false testimony about someone else. This is more for legal re- reasons than anything else. It, it's a command to not gossip or lie about your other Jewish uh, compadres. And commandment 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Ironically, the word covet is closer to our understanding of the word jealous, um, and it's closer than the different Hebrew word that's used for jealous God in commandment number two. God implies he is possessive, that he owns us. This word uh, in commandment 10 is more about a preoccupation with what your neighbor has. And in Christian mythology, these 10 commandments were replaced by Jesus's two commandments, quote, 
Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And, and a little commentary here. This question was loaded because in those days, the Pharisees had over 600 separate laws. Um, they had divided those laws into affirmative and negative laws, as well as into heavy laws, kind of like present-day felonies, and light laws, like misdemeanors. Uh, there were ranked some kind of unofficial rankings to these laws, but um, they were still taught teaching that all laws were equally important because it was God who commanded these 600 laws. Um, and if Jesus picked out one of law was greater than the others, then he would somehow be saying all the other laws were not that important. That was the trick of this question. So how does Jesus reply? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, all Christians have done away with the Jewish Ten Commandments in favor of these broader categories, right? (sighs) Unfortunately, white evangelicalism teaches the worst of both worlds. They reimagine the ten and brush over the two. Or worse, they somehow create their own rules that can be found nowhere in the Old Testament, New Testament, or even historical traditional understandings of sin. And with fundamentally sloppy interpretations of ancient texts, hyperfixations on simplistic do's and don'ts, and legalistic tendencies built into their hierarchy, it is no surprise that there is shame intertwined in the culture of evangelicalism. What is more sinister and not pointed out enough is that whether or not a particular thing is sin or is not is completely dependent on who does it. Have no gods above Yahweh, unless there's someone like Tim Keller, John Piper, Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll, the United States of America, former President Trump, white supremacy, or your particular pastor. Don't bow down to a graven image unless it's a cross, a pulpit, an altar, a worship band's equipment, a church building, or a depiction of a white Jesus from a specific era. Do not take the Lord's name in vain unless you are writing a book, claiming your sermons as divinely authoritative, naming your church, or writing a Bible college's policies. Remember to rest on Saturdays unless you're preparing your sermon or are performing essential work, or if you get a call from your boss or have a flight to catch or need to cook for some potential converts. Honor your father and mother unless they aren't Christian. Don't murder unless they are a potential criminal on your property. Do not sleep with a stranger's wife, but I, I mean, you can have an affair with a church secretary. Just don't get caught. Do not steal, but fight for the church's right to be tax exempt. Do not give false testimony unless you are demonizing atheists or pastors you don't like. Do not be jealous unless your church following, giving, and submission levels aren't meeting the goals of your leadership. Leaders of the cult are offered more shame exemptions than the followers. The way a pastor who confesses to a sin is treated is dramatically different than how a congregant is treated for the exact same thing. The number of mulligans I have seen with my own two eyes given to church leadership is so sickly a contrast with how I have seen average churchgoers condemned. The target is always moving. I I mean, when I was in leadership, what I was allowed to do and what I was reprimanded for was completely inconsistent with how the normal ones were regulated. This doesn't mean leadership isn't scrutinized or shamefully shunned every now and then. 
it, it simply means the structure always dictates that the loopholes are wider on the top than on the bottom. And one of the most imposing faculties of the cult of Christianity is that you are not judged on merely your action or merely your intentions. Both externalities and internalities are shamefully judged. How you think and feel can be just as sinful as your actual behavior. You are told that sinful thoughts are bad because you can't do a bad thing without first thinking about it, and they may fudge around and say, well, the thought isn't sin yet, but it's about to be, so it's bad. But that logic breaks down and makes no sense. How can anything within Christianity be bad but not sin? Further, it seems Jesus himself is uh, quite concerned about our thoughts. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, it is especially important to note that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is likely best read sardonically as an admonishment to those who fixate on the do's and don'ts of life. Even so, evangelicals certainly often take this to mean that we can call our thoughts and desires sin even if no evil action occurs. It might be worth contemplating that our mindset, as well as the regulation of our desires and emotions, does greatly impact our behavior. Perhaps if we are more spiritually inclined, we could even say that the internal has a type of importance that transcends the merely material. Fine. The internal world matters on some level. But if the shame begins before behavior can even be criticized, it is effectively certain that either emotional paralysis or existential anxiety will manifest. How can we forgive ourselves if we are ashamed just for thinking and feeling? Further, how can we forgive others if we are suspect of their thoughts and feelings? Vulnerability is impossible when you have to filter your thoughts and falsify your feelings. The cult of Christianity limits your freedom to explore the conclusion of where each thought and feeling leads, because you are told that any deviant inclination could lead to a lack of conforming to the law of God. By the way, I'm still unsure what that law of God exactly is. Considering all the bad interpretations and extra rules that seem to be present in the cult, you are stopped before you start. You are banned from the arena. Your authentic self is worthless compared to the narrative that they perpetuate. Let's use the example of the sin of lust. Lust is simply a strong sexual desire. One might call it horniness. Most of us, even those more towards the asexual spectrum, experience some level of horniness. Apparently, being horny doesn't conform to the mysterious law of God that can't quite be defined. And I find that weird. In a humanistic rationalist sense, horniness is what helps preserve the species. In a more sensitive sense, it is so perfectly human and harmless to be horny. Well, if you decide to jump into the weeds with an evangelical, they will try to hang you on a noose of nuance. They will say, it is wrong to lust after someone other than your spouse. And I'm like, okay, so I am supposed to start dating someone without feeling sexual attraction to them. Then I'm allowed to feel it after the wedding vows? 
They might reply, well, it's not the attraction that's wrong unless you act on it. (laughs) Well, that seems to be inconsistent with the entire scope of purity culture that is present in their books and indoctrination, but fine. I'm allowed to lust after someone I'm dating, but remain chaste until after the wedding. But what if while I'm dating that potential partner, I start being sexually attracted to another friend? Or what if I just think the barista at my coffee shop is hot? Am I sinning? Some might say I am. Some might say I may not be be sinning. Probably depends on how much Christianese I use while talking about this supposed problem. But let's blow this conversation wide open. What if I'm sexually attracted to a gal who is already married? Pretty universally, the church would say, that is an inappropriate desire. Once again, I don't understand how something could be merely bad in their dualistic view without necessarily being sin. I think uh, the way a white evangelical might try to engage me on this is saying, well, if you're aware of it and actively fighting that desire, you are not sinning because you are fighting your sin. This is where I must protest in no uncertain terms. Sexual desire cannot be the bad thing in that situation. It is a naturally occurring feeling. Now, there would be ethical issues if that married woman and I broke the rules of her marriage, but the problem can't be the feelings themselves. If I were allowed to simply feel that feeling, perhaps even use my imagination later, Uh, that day in my private time, and not feel ashamed of my desires, two things would likely happen. One, I would be less curious about what is so wrong about what I'm feeling. Since I would not be ashamed of it, I'd be less likely to fixate on it. Two, I would not be compelled to stop myself from ever feeling horny again. That internalized shame applies just as strongly when it comes to actually problematic feelings, such as greed, envy, pride, or bitterness. It is healthier and more productive to experience the negative emotion or thought than accept that it is part of your humanity, be vulnerable about that experience, and then forgive yourself for it. Instead of obsessively wondering why you are so sinful, and then feeling like you can never sin again. In some ways, Christians accept this. In other ways, they don't. They will say that no one is perfect, and because we are so sinful, we need to constantly express gratitude for Jesus for taking the penalty of our sin. The expectation is not that there will be folks without sin, but what is dangerous about the cult is that they will simultaneously expect sin, shame sin, and then deny your ability to expect yourself to sin and forgive your own sin. The narrative that keeps being pushed is that you are powerless to prevent anything. The word sin subtly lumps all bad thoughts and behaviors as the same thing. I remember growing up and hearing that being mean to your sibling is no different than committing murder in the eyes of God. The smallest and biggest sins are all worthy of God's wrath, but luckily God forgives all sin. The last part of that phrase may be accurate to scripture. However, the first bit is completely manufactured. There is no reason to believe that all sin is equal. I find that all sin is perceived this way because it makes it easier to dismiss or condemn sin based on the status of the individual, not as much on the action itself. For example, a pastor must work on Sunday. By definition, they earn their paycheck on that day. However, in certain church cultures, any congregant earning their paycheck on that day is somehow breaking the fourth commandment. And to be fair, this is more common in churches with older members. But what about honoring your father and mother? 
if a pastor speaks poorly about their atheistic mother, but a child talks back to their Christian father. The pastor is hardly ever considered to be sinning, while the child will likely be admonished by some adult present at church. The shame is applied relatively, not consistently. Shame within the cult of Christianity is spiritual blackmail. It functions as a way of forcing behaviors with or without total compliance and autonomy. For example, I had a friend at school who was logged into a computer. Uh, And remember, I went to Bible school. Well, the person who used the computer after him realized that his browser history contained pornographic content. Um, My friend told me that the confrontation went as follows. Uh, The guy approached him and he said, I won't tell the school administration, um, but you caused me to stumble with that content. I I don't want you to learn how to simply avoid consequences, so now we're accountability partners. And, And for those less familiar with evangelical culture, an accountability partner is usually some friend of the same gender, because remember, they don't accept same gender attraction, so this is to remove the sexual temptation. Uh, so an accountability partner, some friend who's the same gender, who you report to about how often you, uh, you know, watch porn or make out with your partner or have impure thoughts. It's pretty weird, right? You know, I, I actually had another friend who, uh, he asked me if I could be accountability partners with him. And I told him, no, you can be transparent and vulnerable with me about anything but we're not going to have a transactional friendship where we exchange each other's shame. And this has been a gripe of mine with Christians long before I left the faith. Uh, Trust is currency, not organic. And safe spaces don't actually exist, but are emulated in order to gather blackmail material. And I've seen this over and over again. It, It usually goes something like this. Someone, usually in crisis, breaks down, confesses to something they are ashamed about, then is given either specific programming, uh, their title told on to some higher authority, and or uh, the person feels so indebted to the recipient of the confession that they filter and adjust who they are and what they say around certain people. I've seen this most commonly with um, the sexually repressed pre-married population. But I've also seen this with folks who struggle with self-harm, eating disorders, financial issues, addictions, depressions, theological disagreements, family tension, and even simple deviation from, uh, you know, Christian ways of thinking. Shame is, shame is the best weapon at the cult of Christianity's disposal. It controls, contains, and encourages conversionism. People will try to conform to avoid the shame of those they care about. People will contain themselves to monoliths if they feel unsafe outside given parameters. People will try to convert others if they are told all other ways of thinking lead to perishing. In this cult, shame works. It helps accomplish the goal, sinister or otherwise, of sustaining a system of power. There are many who are better equipped to deconstruct the toxicity of a confession booth. (laughs) Um, But on the more Protestant evangelical side of things, I can authoritatively claim the the confession booth is every narthex, every lunch with your pastor, every youth group, and every phone call from a Christian friend. What I mean by this is that you are expected to be honest, but then punished for it. White evangelicals are the good cop and the bad cop. 
they befriend you, remind you of the love of Christ and his church, offer you anything you want to drink, and then they shame you for your crimes and coerce you into locking up your heart. I had a friend who went to a biblical counselor who was forced to sign a contract that she would never cut herself again. This counseling was mandated by her Bible college because her RA reported to the school that she had witnessed herself harm in the, in the, in the bathroom. Imagine being a freshman in college, dealing with all the stimulus, reconstructing your beliefs, dealing with depression and trauma, committing self-harm. Then, on your first day of counseling, you are told to sign a contract that indicates how you are currently feeling is so reprehensible, you must promise to never do it again. This is exponential shame. Not only do you now have the shame that comes from a subculture, an even larger American culture that stigmatizes mental health issues, further, you will now have added shame if you ever slip up again because you will have broken a contract. You will be crazy and a liar. And white evangelicalism forces you to believe that if you are sinning, you are not only crazy, but a liar. Rather than working to dispel myths that you are an outcast, it reminds you that Christianity requires allegiance to their normalcy. Once as a youth pastor, I gave my testimony, um, citing my struggles with depression, self-harm, and sexting. Um, Afterwards, almost every single kid came up to me and told me that they had self-harmed. And for many of them, that was the first time they had told anyone. And when I told my superior, he did paperwork on these issues, which made me rather uncomfortable. Now, in retrospect, I applaud this, not only for legal reasons, but general wisdom and keeping records when it comes to mental health. However, as an 18-year-old, I sympathized with my youth group that they were not disclosing personal issues to me so that I would then turn around and report it to my boss, who they did not trust. And so I stopped telling him things, which led to problems down the road, including a lack of boundaries, me giving horribly immature advice, and just awful dynamics of trust within that church. And the thing I was trying to prevent was the shame I felt as a teenager myself for my mere existence. You know, when I was 16 and getting dirty looks for how I dressed, how long my hair was, and for playing pop songs on guitar with my best friend after evening service, it just made me feel so hated and ashamed. No one was in my friend and I's corner back then. And it starts young and it never ends. In certain subcultures of Christianity, you are shamed for drinking, even if you just have a glass of wine with dinner occasionally. And in other circles, you're shamed if you don't smoke cigars and talk about football with the men's group on Sunday nights. You can be shamed for the music you like, the way you pray, the theology you align with, the friends you have, the job you work, and any other number of arbitrary traits that are somehow twisted into a web of Christianese that ultimately deems anything the church doesn't like as sinful. I'm not exaggerating. Name anything anyone can do, and I can tell you how some Christian sect will label it as sinful. Intinction, the practice of dipping bread and wine to eat it for communion? Well, to some people, that is eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Sinful. Talking to dead relatives as part of a homily at a funeral? That's prayer to someone other than God. Sinful. 
Eating meat is eating unclean, and being vegan is neglecting to appreciate what God has provided. Being a transgender lesbian is either zero, one, or two sins. It may not be a sin because the church is affirming of all sexualities and genders, or it's one sin because they do not recognize someone's actual gender, so they don't believe they are technically a lesbian. Uh, Perhaps it's two sins because you intend to be a lesbian and reject the gender God gave you. Again, this all comes back to a fundamental problem that if there be a God, we cannot know what he wants for us because he doesn't bother to come down and tell us. Plus, I distrust anyone who says he did do something like that for a particular individual. And white evangelicals tell us that the Bible is God's revealed wishes, so we must do our best to conform to biblical principles. But my question is, which ones? The Levitical law? The ceremonial law? Some sense of moral law? And most would argue, yeah, only the moral law. But I have yet to find any clear laws that are clearly labeled as timeless and eternal. The academics might admit that this matter is up for interpretation, but then who has the right to interpret? Well, if you are Catholic, you have literal power structures based on this question uh, that have proven to not only be corrupt and problematic, but also ever-changing and confusing. If you are a Protestant, you have rejected on-paper hierarchy and have said the individual can interpret if they have the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, only Christians can interpret the Bible. But then most churches agree that those who have studied and dedicated their full-time occupation to studying the Bible will be better equipped to interpret. And this quickly turns into unwritten, informal, unspoken rules about who can read the Bible correctly, ultimately allowing leadership to define Christianity's code of conduct themselves with some vague sense of orthodoxy being the only rubric. So, for some churches... Head coverings are an outdated ceremonial law of the past. For others, this is just as important as any other command. White evangelicals typically focus less on ceremonial types of law, but then decree rigid morals around sex, worship, child-rearing, and most functional aspects of life. They want to control your entire life, not just when you're actively participating in their activities. About two years into college, I decided I want to spend much more time reading atheist books and articles. Um, this po- the point of this exercise is I believe that all truth was God's truth. Therefore, if these atheists had anything true to say, that would help me e- help edify me and, and in my pursuit of Christ, as well as giving me more language to engage with unsaved folk. When I shared this New Year resolution with Christian friends uh, and mentors, not a single one encouraged this undertaking. At best, I was met with confused looks, as if they were worried. Like, I, th- they were, were they worried I was going to be persuaded away from the faith? I was, I was frustrated with this judgment, especially since I was putting a good amount of time, money, and energy into studying to be a pastor. I felt like there was no way I could ever prove how committed to this faith I was. At worst, folks would just outright say that this undertaking of reading more atheists was going to be unwise, that I might fall for their rhetoric, that I might be sinning by meditating on these things instead of heavenly wisdom. Well, thankfully, I've always been a rebel. And I went against the grain and read Dawkins and Hitchens, and I, I wasn't super impressed with Dawkins. I found him to be arrogant and only speak in generalities about the harm religious folks have caused in history, thus making them delusional. I did enjoy his uh, explanation of certainty, however, which was instrumental language for me then and now. Hitchens I fell in love with immediately. Um, He was sarcastic as hell, but artfully. His arguments were strong, and I felt like he was instrumental in renewing my faith as a faith, 
and not an intellectual exercise. From early in my faith, I thought it was necessary to view faith as believing in something hard to believe, not simply observing evidence. I felt the latter was insanity, and I didn't want to be labeled an insane person. Unfortunately, I continued to discover there was some insanity to the white evangelical cult when it comes to their commitment to shun any and all who do not conform to their structure and definition of love. Let's explore the structure for love that this cult of Christianity subscribes to. Essentially, the formula works like this. Humans can only perceive of shadows of love, one of the essences of who God is. Those who are closer to God can feel more of the light and are not limited to mere shadows, as much of the rest of humanity is. The way to get close to God is to accept Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and to keep his commands. Well, here are a couple problems with this structure. Number one, love means having a deep affection for something. There are levels to love, but if you have a deep affection for something, you love it. You can love people, places, or things. If there is anything deeper or more spiritual about love, that does not somehow lessen any individual's experience of love. Further, if the only way it can be deeper is if uh, it's unconditional, that, that kind of sounds compelling. However, I'm not sure the God of Christianity grants this kind of love. Uh, the proof that God loves you unconditionally is supposedly found in Christ's sacrifice, but unless you are talking to some rare version of a universalist Christian, uh, you can still go to hell if you don't obey what he says. And I remember using slippery rhetoric myself to dodge this problem. As a Christian, I would always say, all of God's rules are for our benefit. We are better off obeying than we would be any other way. And this is a dodge, because one, no religious sect has been able to describe consistent, accurate, or sensible interpretations of exactly what God's rules are. And two, what is good for some is rarely good for everyone. Life is more complicated than that. So the unconditional love of God, who shows more love to some than others based on certain conditions, that doesn't seem to be a deeper affection than I have for cats. The second problematic feature of white evangelicalism's structure for love is assuming that the more Christian you become, the more loving you become. Not only is this unproven, the opposite sounds more grounded in the experiences of myself and other genuine souls I know. One article I read in college that helped articulate this issue that I've had for a long time is titled, Why Does Jesus Turn Decent People Into Jackasses? I made some peers uh, into enemies by posting this to my social media. No regrets. Allow me to quote the author, Matthew Paul Turner. Quote, A lot of us Christians, rather than being followers of Jesus, we're defenders of religious certainty, and having certainty about what is and isn't true, good, and holy is actually not faith. It's just certainty. And certainty regarding matters of faith isn't Christian. So we end up acting like jackasses, kicking and galloping and trolling around like we own the place, all the while bellowing scripture and unfounded statistics. We can't love people when we're intoxicated with certainty. We can't serve people with a pure heart if we're burdened by certainty. We can't be anything close to Christ-like when we're certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that we know what's up regarding God. Why? Because we're too busy defending our rightness to be kind, thoughtful, and good. So instead we kick, stomp, and wake up the neighbors shouting, and then we blame Jesus for the messes we make." End quote. 
While I think Turner might be more evangelical than I, he is right that most of the problems are not from people actually emulating Jesus, but by being certain that they know Jesus in, on such a personal level that they can behave however they want and justify it. When I posted that uh, Turner's article online, the feedback I got from fellow Bible college peers was outrage, partially because of the vulgar language, which the vulgar language was more a play on stubborn mules than a vulgar slur, and because they didn't accept it as a fair accusation. Ironically, a lot of comments in the thread when I posted this on uh, Facebook only proved to me that some Christians really were just jackasses. So the first problem with how the Christian frames love is that they claim experience of love is limited outside of their faith. Then it is that their faith somehow boosts access or ability to love more. But the crux of all this flawed thinking is that they make the words love and obedience synonyms. The only way to prove that you love God in their system is to submit to whatever rules your cult leaders have made up. Saying you love God is not enough. They demand action. And fair enough, I also demand action to prove you love people. But I don't think being a white cisgender, heterosexual, monogamous, white-collar American is the proof. And I'm not being inflammatory here. According to their system, God loves you more if you're white in white evangelicalism. It is proven because people of color are only granted more favor the more they conform to stereotypical white behavior. You are expected to be cisgender, even though the Bible says absolutely nothing about the topic. You are supposed to be straight because evangelicals view Adam and Eve as a metaphor for all people, and they take some verses of scripture that were changed recently to be homophobic. You are expected to be monogamous. This helps maintain patriarchy, procreation of their Christian army, and a more controllable family structure. You better be white-collar, or your tithe won't be significant enough and your demeanor not respectable enough. Those elitist pricks, they think America is some sort of promised land. All of those rules and expectations are the way you prove your love for God. You may not always be expected to do all those things perfectly, but you are expected to conform as much as is humanly possible for you. So while a progressive evangelical may be more affirming of queer folk or people of color, they are assuming you are unable to conform in the most ideal way. So they grant you some kind of f***ed up version of grace. But it is not grace to allow people to be who they are. It should be understood as bare minimum respect. But the bare minimum for evangelicals is that you submit to their structure. They will deny this left and right, but it is the observable pattern of their structure. If you do not obey, you do not love, and more importantly, you will not receive love. And the cult is claiming the unclaimable. They are claiming that there is a secret code for getting access to something more than what any other system, ideology, or belief can give. No one can claim that because no one can possibly explain the benefits and consequences of all possible ways of thinking. Artificial intelligence can't even do that. Think about the arrogance of someone telling you that you can only love your significant other more if you conform to their structure of life, love, and the pursuit of peace. This is precisely what white evangelicals do. Sometimes outright, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes embedded in artful rhetoric. And the absurdity is sickening, creating a dualism that both praises those who conform to their version of ideals for love and offers shame for any and all who reject it is undeniably what occurs in this cult.
And do not mishear my anger as a mischaracterization. Many who uphold that this structure is the only way are nice, good-hearted, well-intentioned folk. Many are not. But for the ones who are, it is important to say that niceties aren't enough, and intentions can never absolve harm that occurs. People who love to the best of their ability should not be shamed, but they should be corrected where they err. This is, there, there is a right and wrong here, and it is wrong to reimagine love as synonymous with submission to a cult. A religious trickster might try to say, you see, you're trying to conform others to a vague moral code as well. You're no different. What, gra- what grounds do you have to coerce people to believe like you? Firstly, I acknowledge my moral code is vague and not for everyone. I also think you can be loving and a Christian, just not always a rational one. Further, <laughs> the grounds I have is basic decency, and in their language, it's the common grace of the human experience. And finally, I'm not an authority. I'm just another guy explaining what he knows, thinks, and hopes for. Note the difference. I don't claim unclaimable things. How I express deep affection towards others may not be perfect, nor may it, it might not even be universal. I, th- I think there's something rather beautiful about that. I can't know the timeless way of loving people more. I can however, feel confident in saying that love and obedience are two different things, and more often they're in contrast with each other than in harmony. Obedience to a code, authority figure, or ideology can be an exercise in trust, just as love also involves trust. However, trust is broken in disobedience, but not necessarily in love. Also, disobedience can earn punishment. Love never punishes. Some parents might fight me on this. There certainly is an argument that some punishments are designed to benefit the punished. Additionally, there is some precedent for this line of thinking in most criminal justice systems. But that's mostly noise to me. I'm not saying there isn't a grain of truth in that sentiment, but as a football coach, I can tell you that punishment is not as valuable as corrective action that the offender willfully participates in. It is not a punishment when I make kids run laps for failing to be part of a team or obey rules that we agree upon at the beginning of the year. They also never run a lap if I don't run with them. Also, if they refuse to participate in the corrective action, they are not yelled at, excluded, or hated. They are simply reminded that they are refusing to be part of a team of their own accord and will need to express they intend on being a part of a team to rejoin activities. And if I can keep shame off the football field and great teachers can keep shame out of the classroom, and study after study confirms that rehabilitative justice systems are more effective, cheaper, and kinder than punitive ones, then I find it ridiculous that churches can't keep shame out of their sanctuaries, the ineptest word to describe those places. Love is not obedience. Further, forgiveness is not shame. This is where my split from Christianity could not be any clearer. I believe the white evangelical cult perpetuates an abominable interpretation of forgiveness. Firstly, there is only one entity that has the power to forgive in any absolute sense in their system. Jesus supposedly earned this right when he died on the cross. Or God the Father always had the power and then waited to display it. Or you have to receive the Holy Spirit first before you qualify for immunity, or uh, something. 
<sighs> whatever. All sarcasm aside, the Christians I've always admired are the ones who make forgiveness a central doctrine in their belief system. And there is no greater demonstration of unconditional love than forgiveness. Forgiveness is powerful because it acknowledges the offense, understands the depths and harm and pain the offense caused, and decides to minimize or ignore a justified consequence in order to demonstrate love. While pure rationalists may find forgiveness itself harmful, screw those people, forgiveness is badass. The power of forgiveness was demonstrated in exceedingly impactful ways in the case of Dylan Roof. Here's a quote from USA Today. Quote, Dylan Roof walked into Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina, opened fire, and murdered nine people. <clears throat> Roof, a self-admitted white supremacist, was found guilty on all 33 counts lodged against him and sentenced to death. Through this tragedy, many of the people affected by the hate crimes were able to forgive Roof. Emmanuel, a documentary released on the fourth anniversary of the shooting, finds a beacon of light in the tragedy and puts a spotlight on the power of forgiveness. The film was directed by Brian Ivey and produced by Stephen Curry, Viola Davis, and Mariska Harkate. I never thought I would be able to forgive somebody for murdering my mom. Chris Singleton tells USA Today about choosing to forgive Dylan Roof for gunning down his mother, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and eight others at church. The former minor league baseball player's story of grace isn't a rare narrative. Only 48 hours after having lost mothers, sisters, sons, husbands, and wives, the loved ones appeared in, in court for Roof's bond hearing, and what transpired was something no one could have anticipated. It was the first time any of them would come face-to-face -face with the perpetrator of the hate crime as the judge presiding over Ruth's bond hearing invited them to make a statement should they wish. First up, Nadine Collier, who lost her mother, Ethel Lance. I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul, Collier said while fighting back tears. While not everyone was readily um, able to forgive Roof for his actions, a few family members followed suit and said that they too forgave the gunman. Forgiving Roof at his bond hearing wasn't something planned or premeditated. It just happened. End quote. I remember in the wake of this tragedy, different social media reactions occurred, many, many of whom were frustrated that these folks forgave Roof so quickly. Um, with racial tension on the forefront of so many American minds, doesn't forgiveness dodge the issue and hurt those fighting for justice? And white Christian nationalists in denial shared this story like wildfire. The implication was they expected Christians to forgive like this on such an extreme level. Um, that would infuriate anyone who has been critical of these particular white supremacists for quite a while. But here's the thing. Forgiveness does have power. While many people, maybe even those involved in this story, would say that they would not be able to forgive if it hadn't been for their faith, that's actually unknowable. And I'm willing to take uh, the victim's family at their word, but also willing to say that they do not believe in the same God as many white supremacists, nor the more palatable God in the white evangelical cult. That is a different God they must believe in. And some are able to harness their faith in a positive light, learn deep lessons about forgiveness, and apply it to their lives. And I admire anyone who does this. 
However, many others harness their faith to justify hateful ideology, learn awful lessons about how only those who believe the right things earn forgiveness, and spread this hate their entire life. And I detest anyone who does this. Forgiveness does not belong to Christianity. They interpret this doctrine as theirs and not as belonging to humanity. How dare they? (sighs) There are two horrifying consequences to this perceived ownership of forgiveness. Firstly, forgiveness is weaponized in the cult of Christianity. And secondly, you are not permitted to forgive yourself. How is forgiveness weaponized? Primarily in two ways. First, forgiveness is used to guilt trip you. Second, it's used to contain you. Forgiveness in this cult guilt trips you because they attach a string of submissive humility. If you do something wrong by your standards or theirs, you are not reminded that you are forgiven in order to feel less shame or accept yourself, but to induce a scared and ashamed posture that will hopefully make you feel unsafe anywhere else. In fact, they are not offering you forgiveness at all but an impossible standard. It is I forgive you, but not I forgive you, period. There may be some who say, my pastor always talks about how God forgives unconditionally. I am fully pardoned. All shame is self-given, not from God. To that, I'm say, I'm sure your pastor can preach well. Good for them. So you can go have sex with whoever you want, drink however much you want, and do whatever kind of drugs you want, right? And I'm sure the conversation would then be, placed near the Apostle Paul's analogy in Romans chapter 6 about how we should live righteously because we want to. We've been freed from our bad desires, and now we're free to be as good as we want. But that's the question, isn't it? Who said having sex, drinking, and drugs are bad desires? I certainly have my own opinions about this, but that's what they are, my own opinions. Further, that chapter of Scripture actually demonstrates my problem with Paul. Paul shows his strict and shameful dualism in that chapter. Paul teaches a literal to-slave system. You are either a slave to sin, which results in perishing, or a slave to righteousness, which results in eternal life. I am sorry. I don't buy the simplistic view of life. Life is so much grayer than that, as much as we might not want it to be. Good people do bad things, and bad people do good things, and good people suffer consequences, and bad people suffer none. Even the psalmist, they knew it was true. Now, what I will say is I like how Russell Brand frames this concept much better. Quote, We have been taught that freedom is the freedom to pursue our petty and trivial desires, but real freedom is freedom from our petty, trivial desires. This is true in the most pragmatic sense. But this is just as true outside the Christian faith as it is inside. We do not need a God to forgive us, but we do need forgiveness. Perhaps the forgiveness needs to come from ourselves. And believe me, I'm no expert on this. I struggle intensely with this concept and have yet to muster up the strength to forgive various parts of my past. But I am trying. And it would be emotionally lazy and unproductive to say, Well, God forgives me, and that is enough. (laughs) A God that may or may not be there isn't helpful in the day-to-day struggle with shame. The cult will discourage you, explicitly or implicitly, from forgiving yourself. How could you forgive yourself? Aren't you the problem to begin with? Because isn't forgiving yourself just overlooking your flaws? Isn't that self-righteousness? 
No. Forgiveness is the power to say, I am taking the tougher route in order to benefit my future self. The default is to shame yourself for every wrong thing you do, especially if you were brought up religious. It is hard to have compassion for your past self and recognize you have the power in this present moment to live the life you want. You do not have to forsake your autonomy in hopes that the divine will decree you worthy when you die. You are allowed to accept that you are worthy of love, forgiveness, and a good life now, exactly as you are. Do not let Christian cultists use these same words to trick you into submission to their structure. They are good at it. However, their power is not in loving forgiveness, but weaponizing shame. If you are able to combat shame with vulnerability and forgiveness, not regurgitated doctrine, but autonomous choices to be an honest and compassionate person, they will struggle to keep you in line. And to quote Russell Brand again, you need only allow gentle hope to enter your heart. Exhale and allow hope to give yourself some time. This is a process of change that requires a good deal of self-compassion, which is neither stagnant nor permissive. We can just start by being a little kinder to ourselves and open to the possibility that life doesn't have to be bloody awful. The cult of Christianity will lie to you over and over again that you do not have the power to forgive yourself, that you should be ashamed of yourself, that vulnerability is not as valuable as venerating their God. But you do have the power to forgive yourself. You do not need to be ashamed of yourself. Vulnerability is a courageous posture of which you are in control. Do not submit to the cult, or else you will be ashamed to be anything but a Christian. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.